You're listening to The 66. I'm Drew Kaiser, and with me is Andrew Kingsley. This podcast is about working through the Bible, surveying it book by book, and trying to get the big picture of what the scriptures say. We're in the middle of our study of the book of Nehemiah. Actually, at the end of it, today we will have finished our second book in the podcast. Uh, we started with Ezra. We're doing Nehemiah now. We'll be getting into Esther next week. And all of this is a series on restoration. In Ezra, we talked about, help me out, Andrew, uh, the restoration of worship, Mm -hmm. and secondly, the restoration of the law. And then with Nehemiah, we've been talking, uh, the entire book of Nehemiah is about the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. In Esther, we're going to talk about the restoration of honor, but first we're going to finish in Nehemiah, the restoration of the city. And uh, this kind of serves, today's podcast serves as kind of a a parallel or a sequel to last week's podcast where we talked about the physical walls of the city. And uh, that episode was called The Completed City. And we talked about material provisions and how God provides for us physically. And now we're turning to a spiritual matter, the other side of things, the uh, title of the podcast is going to be A Holy City, but the emphasis is going to be the spiritual walls that God put up in Jerusalem and that He puts up in our lives, and we'll get into that, of course, in the application section of the podcast. So think about the spiritual walls in your life that you need, and I don't mean to get too much application in here at the beginning, but this is essential to the physical walls standing. You know, if you want those material provisions to keep coming, and you want the material defenses and protections that God gives you through answered prayer in your life, you better have the spiritual walls in your life. And I say that because that was very true in Nehemiah's day. We're going to see in our reading Nehemiah going to great pains and Ezra alongside of him, making sure these spiritual walls stand because they're, in an, in a sense, shoring up the physical walls. And if the spiritual walls come down, the physical walls are going to come down again because that's why they fell down in the first place in 586 B.C. So our reading is going to encompass uh, Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 13. And I know that sounds like it's going to be a long reading, but we've worked hard to try to get some good excerpts to show the the essence of what this material is. And uh, all of it is around the law. So the way that God brings spiritual walls into our city is through the law, through the Word. And that still stands true today. The way that the spiritual walls, the defenses, are brought into our lives today are through the Word of God. You remember, Andrew, when um, the devil was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, the first temptation was command these stones that to be made into bread. Mm-hmm. And Jesus responded with scripture, I'm putting you on the spot. But you remember what he said? He said, Man shall not live by bread alone. Yeah, by, by, by every, every word, word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yeah. So that's kind of the point, is that we can't live by just the material provisions, physical walls, whatever you want to call them. We have to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's our spiritual life. That's where nourishment comes from. So that is what we're going to see here. These spiritual walls are built 
by the law. So everything that we're going to read today as we conclude this podcast on Nehemiah is going to have to do with the law. So first we're going to see the law read, and that's in chapter 8, verses 1 and following, in a really interesting ceremony that takes place on the first day of the seventh month, which would be the Feast of Trumpets, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24. So I'm reading here, and it says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And several people were standing with him. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8 says, They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the reading. So you see here great reverence given to the reading of the, the, the book. People are standing as they read, and then the priests and Levites are taking great pains to make sure that everybody understands what they're reading. Uh, now, secondly, you see the law mourned. There's a reaction here, a very emotional reaction in verse 9. When Ezra the governor, and, and I mean Nehemiah the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe taught the people, uh, they say, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And the text explains that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. But after that, they dried it up and started celebrating because it was a special feast day. And that's in verses 10 through 12, as you see this celebration. So they had a natural reaction to the reading of the law, and I'm sure we'll get some applications from this. A natural mournful reaction to it, but then the commanded reaction was celebrate, joy. That's what I want you to have. So that's the law celebrated. Fourth, you see the law practiced. And this picks up with chapter 8, verse 13. And uh, actually, I'm, I'm just going to outline this instead of reading. There, there's so much here under the law practice that we don't have time to read all of this. There are actually five examples in the book of Nehemiah, only one in Nehemiah chapter 8, which is practicing the Feast of Booths. Another feast prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23 was the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. You, do you know anything about, about that one, Andrew? Um, I did some research on it last week. Is this the one where they have to go and live in a little, like, tent-like, I guess a little tabernacle, a little tent? They have to go live in it for a week? Yeah, seven days. To And, and then I there's an assembly on the eighth day. Yeah. I forget why they've got... Something that has to do with coming out of Egypt, 
Right. Yeah, it goes back okay. to the wilderness wanderings. When okay. they, I guess they lived in structures like this, and Moses, or the Lord through Moses, didn't want them to forget about it. So every year, on the, is it the 15th day of the month? In Leviticus or in Nehemiah, it says, I want to say it's the 15th day of the seventh month, the same month that all of this began. Mm-hmm. They go out into the wilderness, they get these, uh, they make booths, and the materials are prescribed here as well. Out of branches, kind of brush arbors, and those kinds of things. And they would camp out for a week. And this was in the Law of Moses, also in Leviticus chapter 23. But the people had not been doing it for a long time. In fact, one, one thing I do want to read is that um, they the text says in verse 17 that all the assembly of those that returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. They had not practiced this since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. Now that can't be literally they had never practiced the Feast of Booths since Joshua. You think about how many centuries that was. That means... If you take that literally, that means they didn't do this during the days of Josiah. They didn't do this during the days of Solomon, David, or Saul. They didn't do this during the days of um, uh, any of the judges, which that wouldn't be all that surprising. But Mm -hmm. they had never done this since Joshua. Joshua was right after Moses. So if that were to be taken literally, it would mean that it was this feast was forgotten immediately after the law was given and they settled in the promised land. And I don't believe that's the meaning here. Rosenberg has a translation of the Bible where he says that they had, it had not been practiced so lovingly as it was practiced on this occasion since the days of Joshua. So what he means is that they the people had not put their heart and soul into this feast like they were on this occasion since Joshua, when everything was new to them and they were first arriving into the promised land. It was like a, you know, that was the first arrival to the promised land. Yeah. This is the second arrival into the promised land and the res- restoration from captivity. So kind of they hadn't done it right yeah. since Joshua. Right, in terms of it. maybe they'd followed through the motions and they had done it legally, but they hadn't done it emotionally. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, their spirit, their heart hadn't wasn't in it. Yeah. In chapter 13, you got four more examples of practicing the law. Um, and I, I bring up chapter 13. The most important part of that is verse 6, which tells us that Nehemiah stayed in Jerusalem for 12 years, as was the plan, but went back to Persia and uh, heard that certain things were not getting done in Jerusalem and made the four-month-long journey all the way back to see that these things get done. And there are four of them that are listed in chapter 13. Verses 1 through 9 has to do with the purification of the temple, namely purifying it from Ammonites and Moabites, who were, according to the Law of Moses, not allowed in the assembly. Uh, In verses 10 through 14, you have the restitution of Levitical support. In verses 15 through 22, the restoration of the Sabbath and not working on the Sabbath. There was a few things, some trading, some commerce being done with pagans on that day. 
And then finally, the prohibition against mixed marriages, something we kind of talked about in the podcast on Ezra, and I don't want to rehash all that again, but that's yeah. in that ends the book of Nehemiah as the fourth reform in chapter 13. So five examples there, starting with the Feast of Booths in chapter 8 and four reforms in chapter 13 of the law practiced. Now, uh, look at the law confessed, and this is the most beautiful part of the book of Nehemiah, I think. You've got, it's, it's like a sermon or a survey of the history of the Jews in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. This whole thing is a confession of the law. Now, the word confession is basically, literally means to say the same thing that God says. So now they're going to say the same thing that God says about their experience in the wilderness, about their experiences up to this point. And that's what these readings are about from Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, starting in verse 1. On the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now notice this is the 24th day. The Feast of, Boo, the feast of Trumpets they were commanded not to weep. The Feast of Booths lasted uh, seven days. That would be, I think, from the 15th to the... Well, the 15th to the 22nd, and then there was a convocation on the 8th day, which is the 23rd. So this is right after the Feast of Booths have ended. That's when they start their mourning. So you can see they're responding to the law in this way, even down to the way that they celebrate and now that the way that they confess and mourn. So they had a natural reaction to the law of confession that was stayed until this point in chapter 9. Uh, verse 2 says, The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Look at verse 13. They say, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Remember, our position is, that the Word of God, the law, is the way that God builds those spiritual walls up in our lives. And this is what they're confessing. In verse 16, they say, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Verse 26, Nevertheless they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. In verse 29, he the, the people talk about saviors that God had sent them to warn them. And uh, they say, you warned them in order to turn them back into your law. Again, they're still talking about the law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. And then verse 31 says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, 
and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. So the confession of the law is basically this. We haven't kept it. We haven't followed it. We haven't done it. So the final thing that you see here is a commitment to the law. And that's the the last part. In uh, chapter 9, verse 38, they make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Then you have uh, all of these names listed and the commitment is made. So all of this is about the law and how it establishes spiritual walls in your lives. And you see from the reading that Nehemiah took this so seriously as a part of his task in rebuilding the city that even after he had spent the 12 years there that he had agreed to do with Artaxerxes and returned to Persia, when he heard that those spiritual walls were not being built, he reacted the same way that he reacted when he heard that the physical walls were not being built. He dropped everything, got permission from the king, and made the four-month-long journey down to Jerusalem to see that the word was established and these spiritual walls were being built. Welcome back. Uh, we are now going to think a little bit. Uh, there's some some stuff in here we skipped over pretty quickly that uh, we want to talk about. And uh, Andrew, we were talking in the break about this title. You seem pretty fascinated with. I was going to let you kind of yeah. take the lead on on that one. Yeah, verse 32. There's something that has popped up a few times, and I think is really interesting. Um, verse 32 of which chapter? Chapter nine. Sorry. Yeah, we covered lots of chapters this week. Um, chapter 9, verse 32. And we're going through this with our teenager Bible class on Sunday mornings. We just had a pretty good discussion about this um, last Sunday. If you look in verse 32, Nehemiah says, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Almost every time that Nehemiah directly addresses God here in uh, here in the book or anytime someone is directly addressing the God of heaven Nehemiah attaches this phrase and you can look in chapter 1 where Nehemiah says this prayer when he was praying for four months before he went to the king he says this prayer and he calls God something very similar to what we just saw in chapter 9 verse 32 look in chapter 1 and verse 5 and I said O Lord God of heaven the great an awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And if you read on, um, well, I've lost my other reference now. It's the opposite. It's chapter 4 um, and verse... Is it 14? Yes, verse 14. Chapter 4 and verse 14. This is where the people are... The rebuilding at this point is... They've, they're halfway done. 
opposition is coming in. Not only opposition, but they are their own people are saying we're tired. There's too much rubble, and their own people from outside the city are saying you've got to leave. You got to come out to us because basically people are wanting to come in and kill you. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse 14. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And I think it's very interesting to note just how high Nehemiah views God. Because when he says great and awesome, and in chapter 9, verse 32, the great, the mighty, and the awesome, we're not saying awesome I think awesome is one of the most overused terms that we use today. Everything is awesome. Yeah. You know, how was lunch today? Oh, it was awesome. How I heard a oh, story awesome. on uh, the word awesome and how it's been just stripped of all meaning. Mm-hmm. And uh, they talked about oh, one time, I don't know if this is true, but the journalist who was telling the story claimed it was true that George Bush um, attended a speech by the Pope. I think it's Pope Benedict. And uh, afterwards, he said to him, "Awesome talk, Pope." You know, this is just kind of a yeah. a sign of what has happened to the word "awesome." Yeah, yeah, awesome talk, Pope. <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily think this is what Nehemiah is doing here. I think he's saying um, that's pretty funny. He's saying this word "awesome." His view of God is extremely high. We've talked already about how he is. How he's just like he's got God right there at his side the whole book because he keeps on saying the the hand of my God is on me for good. He keeps just breaking into the narrative and saying, "Remember me, God, for what I've done." But you can see at the end of chapter thirteen, the end of the book, it's how he closes the book, saying, "Remember me, God, what I've done." God is right there next to him. Not only that, but he has this very high view of God. And I remember a quote from a guy named Jan Martel. He's an author, used to be an atheist, now a Christian. And he makes this quote that I think is very, very telling. It is, a a low view of God is the cause of a thousand lesser evils. And I think that stands very true. Um, I do believe that the main reason Nehemiah is able to be successful here is because God is behind him. And a lot of that has to do with Nehemiah's respect. What does Proverbs say the beginning of wisdom is? Well, it's the fear of the Lord. Or the beginning of all knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And, I, of course, we know that fear is not I'm scared to death, I'm afraid, but it's a reverence, it's a respect. It is recognizing just how great and awesome God really is. So I really like this phrase, the great and awesome God. And I think what's behind that phrase is a big reason why Nehemiah is so successful in solving his problems in the book. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll tie that into a second thing. Um, and you mentioned chapter 1, verse 5. I'll go back to it, and I noticed that in using this title of the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, another thing that he said in worship or adoration to God is that he keeps covenant and steadfast love. Mm-hmm. And I have always been confused about covenants. I, maybe it's one of those things that is so simple that I have a hard time with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's yeah. some things that are words that are used so much that we use them without thinking about them, and eventually the meaning is gone. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the word awesome. We yeah. were talking about the word covenant, same problem. Yeah. We use it all the time, especially talk about the old covenant and the new covenant, but we talk about marriage as a covenant relationship. What in the world is a covenant? If you look up the, the, the Hebrew word translated covenant, 
it literally means, or maybe an original meaning, early meaning of it was to cut. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. you know, you think about it and you think, okay, there's something I can really sink my teeth into. But it doesn't help a whole lot in our culture because we don't cut anything in making covenants. Yeah. Unless it's a ribbon or something. Where, yeah. what, what, what did they cut? They cut flesh. Yeah, they and, cut you know, animals in half, didn't they? Yeah, there was, yeah. There was a scene where so Abraham makes a covenant with God and he yeah. slaughters an animal. It's in Genesis somewhere. And he mm-hmm. walks between the body parts of the dead animal to mm-hmm. cut. All right, now do we know anything more about a covenant from that? At first, no. You have to start thinking about this. Why do they cut things when they make an agreement with God? Well, the reason they do that is the cutting is a demonstration of what's going to happen to me if I break my agreement with holy God. Mm-hmm. What should happen to me? Maybe not what's going to, but what should. You're saying, if I do this, I should die and be mutilated into pieces. That's basically what all the slaughter is about. You know, this is yeah. comes with a heavy penalty. Breaking this covenant comes with a heavenly, heavy, heavy penalty. Mm-hmm. And that penalty is death. That That's the meaning of a covenant. And Nehemiah, yeah. we have some pretty good... Um, defining of this term as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is in chapter 10 where the part of the reading was called the law committed, where they make a covenant and they put it in writing to God. And I skipped this because I was saving it for this part. In uh, chapter 10, verse 28, listen to this. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, His rules and His statutes. Hmm. I think that's the best definition of covenant, at least that you get in the book of Nehemiah. It is entering into a curse mm-hmm. and an oath. There's something very dark about covenants. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, 39 books over on this side and 27 books on this side. Yeah. These books are agreements with people that come with a curse and an oath. That's what they are. And the the curse is the cutting. Same thing as the cutting. It's uh, the curse is, so help me God. The curse is, the wages of sin is death. That's the curse. And uh, this language is used a lot in the book of Deuteronomy. Blessings and curses. If you follow the covenant, you will have a blessing. If you don't follow the covenant, you will have a curse. That language is used a lot in the book of Deuteronomy. And you find it here in Nehemiah. And so uh, I just thought that that really fleshed out the covenant in ways that you don't see in other books of the Bible where it is just assumed that everybody understands what a covenant is. Yeah. Um, or you have like Abraham who knows what a covenant is, and you see him going through these actions that are metaphorical, but he, he doesn't spell it out because he's assuming everybody knows it. We come from a different time yeah. where covenants are just agreements and you know, marriage covenants can be broken with divorce. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you get a I, I love these contracts that we make in the real estate market. Mm-hmm. You know, I sign a contract on a house. You can get out of those. Those contracts mean nothing. 
nothing. If the seller or the buyer, potential seller or buyer, want out of those, they can get out of them pretty pretty easily. Maybe you can put in the contract that it can't be broken except by a fine of $5,000 or something like that. Yeah. But nothing nothing is absolute. Nothing demands death Yeah. if you break a covenant. It reminds me... Oh, man. I hope nobody listens to this part. Cause I'm just well, just don't say it. Well, <laughs> it reminds me of... For all our kids who are out there listening, they'll get this. Oh, I guess no. I'm youth minister, so what should we be talking about? But it reminds me... Last night, I started watching this TV show called Once Upon a Time. Have you seen that show? It's about no, like I've heard I've heard people talk about it. Okay, I've it puts it. all these Disney characters like in the real world, like it's got Snow White and Prince Charming, but they don't remember who they are. Like the it's on witch. TV right now. Yeah, the witch has got some pretty good actors in it. The witch sends them to this different world; they don't remember who they are. That's the curse there. But there's a one of the main characters in the show is Rumpelstiltskin, who yeah. I'm sure everyone is familiar with. But it kind of reminds me throughout the show, this guy is cutting deals with people. And that's how he gets, you know, whatever he wants and all that stuff. He's he's got everything, so he cuts deals with people. But something about that show that sparked me—it's uh, different from our contracts and covenants, I guess. Today it was when he cuts a deal with somebody, it happens like it it must follow through, like or he gets your kid or yeah, something. Yeah, right? that's that's the deal he cuts. You know, that's the thing. He'll be broken if you know his name. Yeah. That's the guy, right? Yeah, that's the same guy okay. who spins the straw into gold. Um, yeah. I'm big on, I'm well versed in fairy tales right now. Yeah. Which most of them are German fairy tales. I didn't know that until I was looking at Wikipedia yeah. last night watching the show. But it's interesting, and I brought that up to say this our idea of a covenant, like you said, you know, it's like a contract. I guess that's the best thing we can compare it to. But there's a way out of a contract. I mean, like you said, real estate, marriage. You can get out of that Rumble stuff Stiltskin. pretty easy, yeah. But with things like that, like from these fairy tales, in these fairy tales, you make a a deal with whatever character it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're stuck. You know, you yeah. sign on the dotted line. No matter what you do, no matter how you try and avoid it, you're you're stuck, and you have to follow through on that covenant. And I think that, and that comes from an old time. I mean, that's yeah. not a. You were saying maybe you shouldn't bring this up. That's not a bad illustration because mm-hmm. it comes back, you know, more recent than the Old Testament, but very still very old culture yeah. in which these agreements are very serious. They get life changingly serious. Oh yeah. And today we have That's no concept right. of that. Mm-hmm. You know, at the worst, we don't get the house that we wanted, or yeah. you know, we start over with a new marriage. Mm-hmm. Pretty quickly, and you know, it's it's just. But despite the fact that in our culture we can throw off commitments left and right, that doesn't change the fact that God's going to hold us to commitment. Yeah, because God on Judgment Day. This was another point I wanted to bring up. I guess we got time to bring it up. Sure. God takes the covenant seriously, and He holds up His end of the deal. If you look in chapter nine, verse thirty-two, where we're at, it says He keeps covenant. And steadfast love. If you look back in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, right there in verse 5, it says, He keeps covenant and steadfast love. Steadfast love, we've already talked about a little bit in the podcast, but just for a little refresher, a little jog here, this steadfast love doesn't mean steadfast, warm, and fuzzy. Or, you know, steadfast, you know, like you uh, you just preached this this Sunday, love is not just well-wishing or something like that. It's not steadfast well-wishing for everyone's well-being. Um, what this implies from the Hebrews is that he is 
going to keep his end of the covenant. So for God, he enters into this. He is bound by his very nature to be a part of this covenant. He cannot break it. He is incapable of breaking this covenant. And that's how a covenant is supposed to be on both sides. We should not, you know, whatever happens, we should be keeping ourselves from breaking our end of the covenant, which is definitely not what the Israelites are doing. And what I want, I want to talk a little bit and apply about what happens at the end of chapter 13, um, if we have time. But the Israelites keep breaking it over and over and over again. And with us, we're a part of a new covenant, a new testament. It's the same thing. Um, and our covenant is to what? Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Basically, in a nutshell, that is our new covenant. Um, if we believe in Christ, if we follow after his example, we have salvation. That's the deal. That's the covenant. Uh, you, you follow after Christ, you have, a, you have heavenly blessings. You have eternal blessings. You don't, then you don't get them. That's the deal. And so when we make this deal, Jesus' sacrifice is never going to fail. God's grace and mercy is never going to fail. Certainly from reading Paul's letters, you can see that, the book of Romans, uh, especially chapter 8. I think it's the one where it says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, what can separate us from the love of Christ is ourselves. Is us not keeping up our end of the deal, Mm -hmm. our end of the bargain, our end of this covenant the deal that we cut with God or that God cut with us. Um, I really like this topic of covenants. I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's very interesting. Yeah, I just had never seen it explained out, spelled out in this way. I don't think anywhere else in the Bible we had to bring it up because mm-hmm. I, maybe somebody could post a comment on our on our website or, or on Twitter or something to give me another example. But I, I think that this is the... Best and maybe the only explanation of a covenant that I found in the Old or New Testaments. Yeah. It was such a familiar concept in those days that they didn't have yeah. to spell it out. It'd be like, you know, to well, I don't want to come up with an example, but <laughs> there are a million things that we take for granted today that ancient people or people in the future will have no concept of. Yeah. And for us, this covenant is comes pretty close to being that thing. Our third section, applies, brought to you by Leeds Family Eye Care in Leeds, Alabama, run by the world-famous Dr. J.B. Pullum. So thank you, Dr. Pullum, for sponsoring our um, third segment today. Um, what we're going to talk about in Apply is we're going to be talking about marriage, I believe, marriage covenant uh, mm-hmm. that we can see from Nehemiah. With the people that uh, you know make this covenant before God, uh, and specifically, if you look at the end of the book in chapter thirteen, starting in verse twenty-three, this is something that from the beginning of First Chronicles up to now, you're going to see this problem, and it comes in with Solomon. Uh, maybe it comes in the Second Chronicles, not First Chronicles. Yeah, Second uh, Chronicles. Solomon makes a really big mistake. He's the wisest man to ever live. 
Uh, but you get to chapter 9, I believe. Is it before chapter 9? He dies in chapter 9, so it has to be um, there beforehand. I always think of 1 Kings chapter 4. Okay. But I know it's in Chronicles also. Yeah, um, I know where we about that. But either Andrew's way. wanting to say that he had a thousand wives. Yeah, that's it. Uh, Solomon, the <laughs> wisest man to ever live, makes this mistake, and it's the reason, it is the reason that the kingdom of Israel is where it is in Nehemiah's day. Had it not been for Solomon's mistake of marrying all those foreign wives, if he had done what he'd supposed to, raised a son, and if that had continued on, if David's uh, certainly the the righteous aspect of David had moved on through all of his children, Nehemiah would not be here doing what he's doing. There would be no reason to rebuild Jerusalem because it wouldn't have been torn down in the first place. And so this thing, it seems like a minor problem. Solomon's a great guy, very wise. He makes a problem. He makes a mistake, has too many wives, marries them from different nations. What's the big deal? Well, that mistake is what tears the kingdom apart from a united kingdom into two separate kingdoms of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel is taken over by the Assyrians. Judah later is taken over by the Babylonians, which brings us to Ezra, which was the first book of this series. Um, and Ezra, of course, leads us into Nehemiah. So the big issue, and this is going to be important when we read this section at the end of chapter 13, at the very end of the book of Nehemiah, is that the main problem that got these people in this situation, all this destruction, all the people that have been killed, all the presence of God being ripped from Jerusalem as far as the Jews are concerned, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, all stems from this one problem Solomon had of marrying foreign wives and following after their gods. That's what got us here. And the reason he followed after their gods was because he was in a covenant with them. He was married to them. It changed his mind. It turned his heart from God towards those women instead of the God of heaven. And so when you get in chapter 13, what happens is these people have done the same thing again. Verse 23, those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Uh, you read verse 24, their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They couldn't even speak the language of Judah, which is Hebrew. Yeah. So they couldn't even... Which is what their scriptures were written in. Yeah. So they came in, like you pointed out in the break. I'm going to steal your point here. No, you don't have to do that. <laughs> they couldn't even read the law. They couldn't yeah. even read the law because they don't know the language. So right. how are you going to raise them in the ways of God if they can't even read the ways of God? And there's not like floating around, well, here's in the Ashdod Revised Standard Version. Mm-hmm. Like those are not floating around back in the day. You've got the Hebrew... You have the Hebrew language, I'm sure, Aramaic, you can read it as well, if you know Aramaic and Hebrew, uh, which the two are very, very similar. But here, the, the kids can't even be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because they, they can't read it. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't know. Right, and they don't have good translations of the scriptures in those days. Mm-hmm. They, it's hard enough to get a copy of a Hebrew translation. It's not a translation. He, the Hebrew scriptures, they just... Yeah did not do translations mm-hmm. in those days. So you have to... That's something that we have trouble understanding. We're like, well, let's get an Ashdod Bible. They didn't yeah. have Ashdod Bibles. Can't go to Bible and Gateway. Even then, you know, um, the nuance... 
the nuances of a language inform your the way that you think and mm-hmm. um, the way that you act. And uh, they were getting this Ashdod, which is a Philistine language, I think. They that was taking over their um, lives. Their culture, their the way they expressed themselves, the way they celebrated, what they thought was good and what they thought was evil, and Hebrew and the scriptures that corresponded with it, and the way of life that corresponded with Hebrew, that was slowly being edged out, and this was because of the marriage. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds really harsh, especially for Americans to read that you know they had this. Uh, very firm law against marrying outside of the nation. But you have to remember, in those days, the God's people were, were a physical nation, and that's yeah. not the case today. This isn't a statement on interracial marriage today. Mm-hmm. It's not against... God isn't against interracial marriage. Um, you, there are plenty of cases we won't get into today yeah. uh, of, of that, that'll show that God doesn't see the color of one's skin, and yeah. He's no respecter of persons. I think we covered that. If we well, we cover that. We probably talked about it yeah. a little bit in Ezra nine and ten because it's the same issue. But what we're wanting to highlight here is how influential. Here's the application: marriage is very influential. Be careful who you marry. Mm-hmm. Don't just marry somebody because she is attractive or because he's got a lot of money or because you're you you're amused by the other person. Mm-hmm. You, there are a lot more important considerations here, and the most important consideration is, will this person help you get to heaven? Yeah. And these people, these daughters of Ashdod, Moab, and Ammon, they were not helping the Jews get to heaven. They were doing the opposite. They were not assimilating into Jewish culture. They were mm-hmm. not assimilating into the to God's people. There were means by which they could have done that. But these were not proselytes. These were firmly entrenched idolaters and mm-hmm. they weren't coming over to Israel's side they were pulling Israel over to their side and that's mm-hmm. why Nehemiah kick, starts kicking stuff well what did he do? Verse 25, he cursed them, beat them pulled out their hair yeah. and made them swear to the name he must have been a big guy you know because if a little guy's pulling on somebody's beard he might get punched but nobody yeah. was punching Nehemiah mm-hmm of course, he had some letters from Artaxerxes that probably had something to do with pulling a beam out of your house and yeah. impaling you on it. So that might yeah. also may have That's discouraged some retaliation against Nehemiah. Yeah. That's basically that. Let's move on to something else. We've got a lot of applications. I don't want to take up all our time on one. Um, I want to go back over to this morning as a reaction to the reading of the law in chapter 8, verse 9. You remember the people started weeping spontaneously at the reading of the law and they were commanded to stop weeping. And that's a really interesting thing that I I think we should turn back to. Um, I mentioned a while ago David Rosenberg's translation to the Bible. It's called a literary Bible. It's not a full translation. I think it's just the Old Testament. And there's only an excerpt from Nehemiah and uh, this fortunately is, is the excerpt. And here's how he translates verse 9 of chapter 8. He says, Everyone was weeping as they listened to the sweet words of Torah. And later on he says, They felt their the words sweetness within. So he took it that they were weeping mm. sentimental tears. You know, they were just very touched by it. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the original languages do not demand this idea of them weeping at yeah. the sweetness of the Torah. I love it, but I really don't think that's what was going on. Yeah. You know, I think what was happening is chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, the curse and oath. Yeah, they're you know, they, they felt cursed because of so many things they were hearing that they were not practicing. The Feast mm-hmm. of Booths, for example, which follows directly after those tears. Yep. Um, they practiced the Feast of Booths. They had not been doing that. I doubt that they were doing many of the feasts at all. So, you know, I, I think that the weeping in the morning was, those were tears of godly sorrow. And uh, a verse in the New Testament goes along with this, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where Paul says that godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So naturally, there is a progression towards salvation that involves productive tears. That's what godly sorrow, godly grief is. Tears that produce repentance, which is a change of mind that leads to change of action, and repentance that leads to salvation. Now, there is a worldly grief, which is kind of like Judas Iscariot's, Judas Iscariot's grief, which mm-hmm. is remorse without action, un- yeah. unproductive tears. Yeah, and, and it, uh, led, it led to death. Yeah. Now, that's a perfect illustration. Led to death. Uh, Peter, if you want to use the same case, Peter would be godly sorrow. Peter mm-hmm. wept bitterly over what he had done, which was, I think, initially just as bad as what Judas did. Yeah, you know, he denied Christ. Um, Judas denied Christ. They they did it in different ways. Peter went out weeping bitterly. Judas wept bitterly, but Judas hanged himself, and Peter repented and became a leader yeah. in the church. And that's what God wants to see. He doesn't want to see you give up. He wants to see you repent. He wants you renewed. He wants to restore you. And uh, I think that they were weeping these godly tears here in um, Nehemiah chapter 13. Yeah, I think verse 11 of Second Corinthians 7, I just kept reading on a little bit after you read verse 10. You weren't listening. I was, yeah, well, kind of, half and half. Um, verse, I've been drinking so much coffee, I'm like going, I'm shaking right now. <laughs> Um, but verse 11, he says, See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Um, I think it's interesting to note, Paul says here, this godly re- grief is going to produce a repentance. In verse 11, he says, It has made you earnest. This godly grief yeah. has produced a new earnestness. Now, what happens in Nehemiah directly after this lament uh, that we have going on back here? What happens is, they celebrate the Feast of Booze, and how do they do it? Properly. In such a way that has not been done since the days of Joshua. Mm-hmm. So their zeal is restored. This yeah. godly grief, and I think it's a good example that this actually is godly grief here. Mm-hmm. This godly grief has produced in them repentance from chapter 10, certainly because they confess. Well, they try and repent chapter 13. Some of them can't figure it out. But they confess in chapter, or they confess in chapter 9. Not in chapter 10. Uh, they confess in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. Yeah, that's that's the whole of chapter 9 is confession. Yeah, and in chapter that's okay. 8, yeah, I, I keep flipping back and forth here. I'm getting lost. Too much coffee again. But in chapter 8, uh, they celebrate the Feast of Booze, and there's 
something that takes place, as we mentioned earlier, that never has since the mm-hmm. days of Joshua. And I think it is that fact that they are like in Acts 2. They are touched to the very core. Yeah. Their hearts yeah. are touched, and now they that, have That's another great example of godly grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I like David Rosenberg's work. His um, translation is very loose, very um, poetic, and uh, it's praised by poets more than scholar, Old Testament scholars. But I, I think that he did some interpreting there, and I think he got it wrong. I don't think they were just touched by the sweet words of the Torah. Yeah. I think they were touched by the, the hard words of the Torah. I yeah. think that, that that moved them to serious grief and I bitter tears. I think I would tend to agree with you. I think that's what that, that was. Okay, now, um, I want to also talk about, I want us to get back and focus on what this whole thing is all about. Because I think there's a great application for Christians today on these spiritual walls. You know, we, we talked last episode about praying for physical walls in our lives, praying for the material provisions, you know, whether that is safety for your children, health for your spouse, uh, food on your table, money to pay the bills, good job, whatever those things are. It's appropriate to pray for those things as long as we don't make them first. And we talked about Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. Well, this is the seeking God and His righteousness part of it. Yeah. And the and the basic, the most important application here is physical walls will come down if they are not braced by spiritual walls. You have to yeah. have those first. That's really and that's why point. Nehemiah is over in Persia and he takes great pains to go back home and initiate these reforms to get the law practiced because he knows that it won't do him any good to have a brand new wall around Jerusalem if they're sinning, if they're yeah. not living by the covenant and they're cursed. If they're cursed, the walls are going to come back down because those walls are being held up by spiritual supports. That's a, that reminds me of what he says to them in chapter 4 when they meet that opposition. Um, he says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And five of your brothers, because he knows, he tells them not to be afraid. Why? He says, don't be afraid. The walls are halfway built. Because he could have mm-hmm. said that. Don't be afraid. We got, we're halfway done here. Mm-hmm. He says, don't be afraid. The Lord is awesome. Yeah, because he knows that their strength does That's not really come mm-hmm. from these walls. I mean, yeah, part of it, sure. We talked about physical sustenance and everything, but that's not the point. I think you put it perfectly when you said you've got to brace the physical walls with the spiritual walls. That's mm-hmm. definitely going to be used in our class on the same morning. Excellent. Well, another thing uh, it reminds me of this little prayer at the beginning of, Je- of uh, Third John. In verse 2, he's writing to this guy named Gaius. And he says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, there's the physical walls, as it goes well with your soul, spiritual walls. Hmm. There's a few different ways that you could take it. Uh, Maybe Gaius had good health, and John was saying, I want your spiritual health to be as good as your physical health. Another way to read it is, Gaius, I want you to be healthy, but only if your soul is doing well. But what he's saying is the two things, we know this, the two things go together. The spiritual health goes with the physical health, and the physical health is dependent upon the spiritual health. And the physical doesn't matter if the spiritual is out of sorts. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that's the basis of today's episode, and really the whole book of Nehemiah. And before yeah. we end, you know, we didn't do this at the end of Ezra, and I want to do this at the end of each book. A little retrospective, a little uh, looking back on the book as a whole, and just personal thoughts on it. You know, whether you how you liked it, what did you like about it, maybe some of the weaknesses of it that, that you don't like about it. Now look, before we do this, I don't want anybody to get irate. We believe in the inspiration of the Bible, and all of these books that we're talking about are of the utmost importance, but some of them, personally, we're going to favor over others. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm talking about here. I think it would be interesting. I'd like to know what you think, and and I'll share my thoughts. I'll say for Nehemiah, it's never been one of my favorite books of the Bible, um, I think because it's there's a lot of you know there are a lot of lists of names, and the way that the Holy Spirit chose to put this particular book together was um, it's it's somewhat fragmented. There's a lot of records put in yeah. in places. Some of it is parts of Nehemiah's journal, and some of it's brought from other things. And the Spirit was behind all of that, and it got the job done. But in terms of sitting back and reading devotionally, it's never moved me like other books of the Bible has. Yeah. Although doing this is really, you know, I've, I've found some amazing things, some of the mm-hmm. things we talked about today, like that definition of a covenant. Yeah. I mean, man, that Nehemiah does that better than anybody, yeah. and that's really been great. Also, another thing is it's always been used as a, a leadership management yeah. guidebook, and I think we do it a disservice when we do that because there's mm-hmm. so much spiritual stuff. And I really think that we just named the gist of the book. Yeah. And this is what we gain from going through the Bible the way you and I are going through it. We're not just taking chapters 1 through 6 and getting some leadership ideas. Yeah, We're taking chapters 1 through 13. Mm-hmm. What do chapters 1 through 13 teach us? Yeah. Well, they teach us that Nehemiah saw the need for spiritual walls before physical walls. And they don't... The book isn't... Um, Nehemiah is the greatest leader in the world. Everybody be a leader like Nehemiah. That's not what the book was included in the canon for. Mm -hmm. It's not the great and awesome Nehemiah. There you go. It's the great and awesome God. God. Now, can can I learn how to be a good leader from Nehemiah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And -hmm. people have written about that. You know, there are tons of books on that. You can get a lot of good tips on it. But that's not what the book's about. What did you think about it? I really like it. Um, I hadn't done that much study in it before we got into it. Uh, but I really enjoyed the book. Uh, as far as I guess, it's kind of difficult to outline and go through a little bit because it's kind of like Ezra, where some of those things weren't necessarily chronological. Well, yeah. I guess they were in this book more so than Ezra. I don't um, know. You know, like today we, we had to have? skip over to the end of the book. Yeah, um, to thirteen. Uh, those are the only things with these books of history. But it's that way with every Hebrew history. Mm-hmm. They do things by, like, topic, yeah. not necessarily by the timeline. They weren't concerned about yeah. that. You know, that's not... Yeah. We're and a little... We're more so like, what happened in year one, two, three, four, yeah. five, six, seven, you know? Just give it to me in the the timeline, and then I can, you know, I don't, I don't need it by, by a person or by mm-hmm. theme. topic. Yeah, by theme. I need it yeah. by the time. Um but I really enjoyed it. Uh, some of the things I, re- I really like, and I brought it up a few times, I'm bringing it up again, I really like that great and awesome God. Mm-hmm. I like Nehemiah's view of God, and I like how he is, um, he's always, 
I guess he, God's always like right there for uh-huh. Nehemiah. Yeah. And that's something I really like to just the presence of God and Nehemiah's respect for God. Really, his whole view of God is awesome. From and, the book. and going along with that, his view of prayer. Mm-hmm. I think over the last few weeks yeah. doing this has changed my view of prayer into not just, of course, I've always known it's not just for petitions. Yeah. But he prays to keep a relationship going. Mm-hmm. That's more of the reason why, you know, we talked about the imprecatory prayer in chapter four. Yeah. You know, how could he pray that? Because it was more about not a lightning bolt striking his enemies but about keeping that relationship going with God and letting God know how he felt. Yeah. And venting to God instead of, you know, to his servants or whatever. And um, So going along with what you said, what really impressed me is this man's prayer life. Very practical example of prayer. Showing me that I don't have to go for the epic nighttime prayer, but I can go for the little and often, short and often prayers. Yeah. all day long, remembering my God mm-hmm. is right next to me, whatever I, th- I do. I think out of all the things, and certainly you mentioned the leadership of Nehemiah, which is which is awesome. It's great, and it's you know it's good to look at and learn some tips from for leadership in the church, especially because Jerusalem is a direct, you know, you can directly metaphor Jerusalem to the church today. Yeah, you know, uh, so spiritual walls, physical walls. That's I think that's a great illustration to make for the church today, but. Nehemiah's leadership skills, I don't think they come in just because Nehemiah was a smart guy. I mean, he was. But, you know, there's hundreds of thousands, well, probably not that many. There's hundreds of other smart Jewish guys at this time. I'm sure we're at least Mm -hmm. as smart as Nehemiah. I think the key to Nehemiah's success is his relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, we want to have good leaders in the church today that can help us with our physical and spiritual walls and get things done correctly. Well, the correct way to do that is not necessarily to sit down and say, well, Nehemiah went through these different steps to solve his problem. You know, I think that's beneficial to see how he did it. But I don't think the the best way to produce good leaders in the church is to sit them down and say, well, Nehemiah did, he identified the problem, he began, he, he put a plan together, he put the plan in action, he told the people, you know. Yeah. I mean, those things are great, good, fan, you know, whatever. But the reason Nehemiah was successful was because of his relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And if we want successful leaders in the church today, <clears throat> I think we need to, you know, and as ministers, you know, we're leaders, not in the sense of an elder, um, but we are, we're leaders in the church. And I think the best way for leaders to improve is not just to be reading all these books about the ins and outs of ministry, I think that is beneficial and I think it's good, I think it helps but nothing replaces your relationship with God and if you are not in constant prayer you know, which I'm sure we can all do a better job of, I know I can if we're not in constant prayer like Nehemiah is and if we're not, if we don't have this very just ridiculously high view of God and if we don't respect the covenant like Nehemiah did you know, if we don't spend four months in prayer about a big decision in life like Nehemiah did, then I think our leadership skills suffer, or our leadership in the church suffers uh, because of our lack of, I guess, our I don't know of any other way to put this, but our lack of a uh, relationship or the closeness in a relationship with God mm-hmm. like Nehemiah has here. I think that's the, 
if you get that right, everything else falls in place to me. Yeah. Well, that's it for Nehemiah. Thank you for joining us on The 66. If you want to check us out online, we are at the66.net. You can send feedback to me, dkaiser at arcoc.com or akingsley at arcoc.com. Our Twitter feed is the 66 podcast. Uh, what else? We're working on, we're still working on the iTunes feed. We think we got a glitch fixed. So by this time next week, we hope to be able to announce that we have the iTunes feed fixed and you can put it into your feed reader or your, your podcast software, whatever it is that you listen to stuff on. The music, I need to start mentioning this, the music is brought by the Danny, Danny Ray Martin Quintet and, uh, we, uh, we're looking forward to getting into Esther next week, yeah. which will get us started on wrapping up our series on restoration. And, of course, uh, we've got four episodes planned for Esther. So I'm excited about getting into a new book and uh, all the things that we have in the future. So join us next time.